Welcome to Business Unmuted, the Northern Business Podcast, sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, the owner of Recognition PR. A 70-plus clients we represent have a, around £6 billion of turnover, 30,000 staff between them. And when we talk to them, we realise we're perfectly placed to discuss the economic climate because they're so varied. They've got lots to say. Make sure you never miss an episode of our programme, Business Unmuted, by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today, we've got Tim Bailey, Head of Practice at Excite. That Excite is Excite Architecture, and it's a design service based in Newcastle. Also in the studio, we've Sam Harrison, Managing Director at Middlesbrough-based Animersion, which designs digital visualisation tools, including VR and holograms. And down the line, we have Martin McTade, Martin McTague, National Chair of the Federation of Small Businesses. Martin, I'm going to start with you, if that's all right. We, you get a realistic, holistic view of the economy from the seat you occupy, particularly from the point of view of smaller businesses. Are there any green shoots this spring in the economy, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we've just produced our small business index, uh, and that's showing that there was a big improvement on quarter four of last year. So there are real glimmers of uh, optimism appearing in the economy, although I've got to say it's still quite a long way behind where it was quarter one last year. Mm. So, But there are encouraging signs. I find in my business practice of PR, uh, we've, I'm always very optimistic and positive. It's what PR people are paid to do, I think. But uh, some of my clients uh, and some of the businesses I know uh, are feeling a little bit of uh, hesitation on the good news and some of it is caused by the banks wanting to refinance and when they refinance uh, looking at Covid loans and when the Covid loans expire and Covid isn't really out of the system yet is it from that point of view? No, I don't, there's a big hangover of Covid debt. There are people who uh, hadn't borrowed previously but came into the COVID period and felt they had to, to survive, and they are still paying down those loans. And that means there's less money available for investing in productive uh, activities. Uh, And I think the government knows that, but it's trying to make sure that it steadies the ship as far as the economy is concerned. I was talking to a company, uh, a reasonably sized company as well, whose regular bank finance loan uh, needed to be uh, re- re-engineered because it had come to the end of its term in May um, and its Covid loan was coming to the end of its term in December and the bank was saying well you can refinance but in the period of the new refinancing your Covid loan comes to an end so you've got to refinance that as well and they were being a little bit difficult on the ability of extending the Covid loan as well because if you've got a, a loan that expires at Christmas you can notionally extend it if the lender agrees. Do you think banks are being as reasonable as they need to be over those loans? Well, you know, they they don't have a lot of flexibility when it comes to the COVID loans because you have rights under the pay-as-you-grow regulations, which mean that you can uh, go for an interest-free period, you can go for a Mm. capital holiday, lasting six months each and you can also extend the term of the deal to 10 years from five years so there is a lot that you are allowed to do with or without the bank's permission um, so i think you you need to you know, you know encourage 
small businesses in the northeast to to press their rights when it comes to bank behaviour. And do you help, as, as, as if you're a member of the Federation of Small Businesses, which I am, by the way, uh, my business, not that I want to do that, I don't have a Covid loan now, but uh, if, if you have a situation where you're finding it difficult to navigate, does the Federation assist? Absolutely, yeah, that's what we're here to do. In fact, we've uh, signed a big deal with um, NatWest, we've got a million small business customers mm. across the country, where we're acting as a triage service for any bank uh, customer, where if they come to us, we will provide them with the source of information and guidance to help any of these situations, like uh, extending loans, finding new sources of finance and so on. So there you go. It's a practical reason to join the Federation of Small Businesses if you're not a member already. All right, that's the plug over. Uh, let's talk about one of the bits of research that you've done recently, uh, the Growth Belt Report. This is a report into rural firms and rural businesses. Tell us about the main conclusions of this report. I mean, it's a big report, but I think I'd, I'd pick out four big headlines for me. The first thing is that uh, I think people can underestimate the social value of businesses in the rural community. They are the glue that holds a lot of these communities together. And without them, I think a lot of uh, a lot big parts of the country would find it very difficult to continue. There is also a, a very important point raised in the report about a lot of rural businesses need um, or are pushing up against the VAT threshold. So we're suggesting, because it's been eroded by uh, inflation, yes. that the VAT threshold is pushed up to £100,000. Because at the moment, that cliff edge is holding back so many businesses, especially in the rural areas. The third point I would, I would raise is really more about communications. You know, if you're away from... Um, traditional broadband or um, mobile networks and you're into the rural area, some of the services really drop off quite dramatically. And we think that is is holding back a lot of rural businesses. And then the final point I think I would make is that there are so many ways in which the government can help. But when it comes to heating buildings in the rural area, most of them are dependent on either oil or LPG yeah. and we think they ought to concentrate more on providing businesses that are off the gas grid with really practical alternatives to those two fuels. Well, that's a very and all of those uh, uh, those suggestions certainly are worth consideration and my own home is off grid and uh, we're near to Darlington but we're not quite on the gas network and it, it is astronomical the cost. Um, yeah. You also mentioned the VAT threshold uh, I think it's it's something that small businesses fear registering for VAT. It's a, a, something that maybe is worth worse in the in the fear of it. It's like crime. The fear of crime is worse than crime itself. But once you do register for VAT, you can claim back VAT you've spent over previous months. So maybe some something that could be considered is extending the claim back period as well. Yeah, I mean that's a good suggestion. But if you're in a, if if you're to quote one example, say a bed and breakfast uh, business based in a rural area, yeah, and you're competing uh, with other uh, hospitality businesses around, if as soon as you go over that eighty-five thousand pound limit, 
you are currently 20% worse off. Yeah. That is going to really hold back most businesses who, uh, you know, that's their only really competitive advantage is to keep that 20% advantage that they've got at that point. And if you're going to make that limit, if you're going to essentially erode that limit every year by inflation, that is seriously hampering the growth of a lot of small businesses. I think there are many people who have subscribed to that point of view. And I remember before I registered for VAT back in 1993, month after month, I was trying to say, well, could I defer that invoice just to stop registering this month? And you get to the point that it gets a bit ridiculous. And the registration threshold is too low. I think when I when I registered it, it was like £35,000 or something like that. Yeah. It was, uh, But it yeah. was, you're right, it, it's, it, it focuses people's attention on trying to play the bureaucracy rather than focus on their business yeah I mean you've, you've only got to look at the graph of businesses that um, uh, register turnovers between say I don't know 50,000 pounds and and a million mm. and there is this enormous spike at 85,000 where yeah. people just hold back yeah. and they don't want to they don't want to invoice another penny because one penny over that limit yep. and they're suddenly into the VAT um, threshold. Yeah. Okay, well, Martin, that, that's a fantastic uh, explanation of the report. And I think there'll be many people watching this podcast or listening to this podcast who have businesses that are based outside of towns. And rural area doesn't necessarily mean the Yorkshire Dales or the Yorkshire Moors. It can just mean outside of the main conurbation, can't it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, you know... It, it's true that, say, in an area like Darlington, where you don't have to be very far outside the main town before you're off the gas grid, mm. before you find that you've got poor road and rail services. And all these factors are a disadvantage for any business that's trying to establish themselves there. All right, Martin, do hold on. I'm going to talk to all of the guests about other things, but we might come back to you at the end. Thank you very much. Right, joining me now, we've got uh, uh, um, Sam Harrison and also Tim Bailey. Uh, Tim, you're an architect, but you, yep. your whole business is about place, and you just heard uh, uh, Martin there talking about place and business. Um, a lot of your work would tend to be in urban conurbations, I should imagine. It, it is, of course. There's a concentration of buildings there and um, a, a lot of people who are going to want to use buildings as part of and parcel of their own growth. But mm. one point that Martin raised there about um, agricultural buildings and the infrastructure and being off-grid off or that becoming a hamper, I think it's a very interesting counterpoint to how do we create sustainable place and placemaking within small rural communities to equal value that it has in urban settings mm. around social space, around the village pub, around uh, PVs and micro-generation for those buildings that he was mentioning. An architecture of the type you practice, which is across all sorts of different genre, but not necessarily huge projects, but more manageable projects, though those projects do need to take into account not just the look, shape and size of buildings, but how buildings connect to these services. They, they absolutely do. Um, the object in the air is fine and shapeable and can be a piece of sculpture, but as soon as you plug it into the ground, that's the bit that makes it work. Uh, whether it be the outflowing stuff, waste and drainage, mm. or the inflowing stuff, electricity, or, or other energy forms, and where it is and its context on a street or a, a you know a brownfield site or a greenfield site is really key. Now, 
A lot of things are driving new buildings now, not least of which is the efficiency um, and the um, carbon footprint of existing buildings. Does it make sense to uh, build buildings uh, new or to recycle existing? I suppose it's an old equation. What is greener? What is more efficient? What is a, a better use? Yeah, it's a great question. Far too complex to unwrap completely here. But I think that the, the sequence of questions that you have to ask is, if it exists, how can we use it and what for? How do we retrofit it so that it's as good as it possibly can be in performance terms? And then only if those two answers fail for one reason or another is new build a really good option. Mm -hmm. Of course, new build has its own place. It's fresh, it's new, it's of the age. There's lots to recommend it and be excited about. It can be identity making and all mm -hmm. those other things. But I think in terms of the carbon agenda, looking at existing stock and how we can use it, there's an expression long life, loose fit, which essentially means how can one concrete frame or one uh, big warehouse building have many, many uses over many years. And your own practice, which is well respected in the northeast of England, what kind of projects are you finding are in the pipeline now? There's, a, there's an awful lot of residential uh, thinking, um, if you like, but I think key projects are around that retrofit uh, um, agenda. but. Similarly, within the heritage, so I mentioned identity earlier, quite a lot of places rely on heritage and their uh, cultural um, sort of sense of, sense of place to, to drive economy and uh, new ideas. And so we're, we're, we're gaining a lot of work in the heritage and conservation field, quite a lot of work in the residential field and a modest amount at, at current quantum in commercial change. The commercial uh, work is interesting as well. We are sat in a building that was built in 2007. As you walk through the door, you will look at the building differently because you're an architect, <laughs> but most people look through, uh, walk in, it's got some glass and a bit of chrome and it's open plan and relatively modern. Yet, and I own the building, so I'm very pleased that I own this flash building. But when it comes to the energy, my goodness, the bill's saw. And then look at it, and I get, get one of the specialists in to look at energy consumption, and there's no insulation in the roof, or barely any, and it would need retrofitting. And yet the building was only built in 2007, and a house built in 2007 would be pretty efficient. It, it would. There's probably a latent defect in there somewhere, <laughs> to be honest, but um, because it should, it should be insulated to a pretty high standard at, at that age. My point was going to be, whether it be buildings built in 2007 or 1987, more modern buildings are not immune from the need of some retrofitting with the current uh, climate change agenda. It's virtually true to say that every building, whether it was built last year or 10 or 15 years ago, requires some retrofit mm. to come up to what we will need uh, for in, in five years' time. So there are very specialist and one-off projects both in domestic and commercial markets which have addressed that agenda but the majority are behind the curve. Before we leave you tell me about the technology that you're introducing to your work because we want to generally to one of the big themes of the business agenda at the moment and was featured this week in a lot of the mass media is the emergence of AI. Does AI have any place in architecture? It does and it will it'll force its way in, I, uh, I think. Um, so technology is 
very well understood in the in the uh, construction industry. We call it digital tech, digital construction, and um, it, it's about being able to do what are called uh, the digital twin, create mm -hmm. the whole building inside a machine, explore advantages of material, quantum, uh, relationships of spaces and so on before you actually build it. You can also run a program which sequences the whole construction project, which means on site it's likely to take less time. So there's an awful lot of potential that is being used and increasingly widely used inside that space. AI, I think, brings a, a different dimension where um, what I hope its upsides are is that it's, a, it's going to be able to help in the red tape uh, bonanza that is currently the planning and building regulation system. Um, it, ha it might have downsides by creeping into creative space and, and defaulting to sameness so that you have a house is a house is a house and everywhere you want a house, it produces the same thing. So I think it's an interesting point of balance that we're in at the moment about where that might play out. All right, well, let's bring, uh, let's bring Sam in from Animotion. Sam, AI is increasingly uh, entering the workplace. Now, I run a PR firm and I thought, well, can we use AI in any way to look at our written material? And then today uh, it was announced that the Screenwriters Guild of America have gone on strike. And there are chat shows in America that will have no jokes tonight because <laughs> the screenwriters are on strike. And one of the things they're objecting to and they want limitations on is AI writing scripts and writing jokes. It's a really interesting one, that whether or not a, an AI can produce an original joke would be a really interesting challenge, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a real... These technologies are going to impact everything. Um, where, where, and I think it's how you deal with that and how you, I suppose, take on board these technologies and, and explore them and fold them into what you're doing uh, that's, that's going to be the, the important factor. I, I joined ChatGPT today. And by the way, I've been trying to get and be a member, join that for a long time. And I managed to get on today, just before the, this programme went on air. I asked it to write me a limerick about daffodils. And it said, there once was a flower so bright that brought cheer with its golden light with petals of yellow and fragrance so mellow, the daffodil is a true delight. Now, actually, that is a very good limerick. Yep. It's quite, quite right. It it's, may partially exist in another form somewhere it else. It might, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so just to test it, I said, uh, tell us what a good podcast should have. And it, it's written me quite a long digest of what a good podcast should have. And my podcast producer's watching this, but he doesn't know no. that I've actually asked uh, this, uh, 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 this uh, GPT. It says, valuable content. Well, I think, Martin, you lived up to that. You lived up to the valuable content. Thank you very much. Um, engaging hosts. Well, I would hope that I do my best. Interesting guests. Well, you know, Sam, you're doing your best. Well, there's a bit more to do, but Tim, you were okay. Yeah, definitely. Martin's good. Um, high quality production. Well, hopefully you can see this and you can hear it. Consistent schedule. It's every Wednesday live at five and every weekend. Uh, marketing promotion. Well, I do my best on that. And a call to action. Which, uh, which of course is to, in this case, uh, join the Federation of Small Business. So it did work. And that's yeah. the point, I suppose. I'm labouring it a bit, but it did work. Do you think you'll ever use it? We, we are using it in different ways. Um, and we have to be. We have to stay on the, on, on the, uh, on the edge of technology. Um, so uh, our teams are experimenting with the, the many different tools that are out there in terms of how that might enhance their flow. Um, 
think in, in early stages of ideation, it's a quick way of producing a mood board, get it to pull things together for you, for example. Um, but you sh and, and equally for our coders, you can ask ChatGPT and you can ask more specialist tools um, to write computer code for you. Um, and often um, that code is good code, um, but you have to be good to spot whether it's not. Um, um, yeah. And this is one of the challenges. There is a real danger that with a lot of this technology, you know, it, it democratizes things. It, it puts great power into people's hands that aren't perhaps ready to use those, those things. So there's a danger that, that it can create uh, bad stuff for you too, stuff that's no good. And if you're not, if you're not good enough to spot that, um, then there'll be a challenge. Yeah. I also saw that there was a disclaimer, which is this chat GPT may produce inaccurate information about people, places, or facts, yeah. which is quite, quite a good disclaimer. I wish that this podcast had such a disclaimer. I mean, it's, it strikes me that AI is a, is a tool that will allow business owners like yourself and, and, and like Tim and like myself to tackle something that is very difficult to tackle, white-collar productivity. It's very easy to say to somebody working on a production line, you should produce so many things an hour and I've worked it out and there's been a time and motion study. But when you're dealing with a creative business or a business that requires uh, an extensive amount of brain power and thought, it's very difficult to say, come on, hurry up. But if you take the drafting process out and then make the review process be about the brain power, mm -hmm. it strikes me that is a, a useful, that's why the screenwriters don't like it. Yeah, I mean, in that, in that respect, that can be part of a useful flow. There is a danger, though, in, in not having people learn to draft things, that eventually mm -hmm. those abilities wither. Yes. Uh, and really, you, you need to have people at a certain level to qualify whether what's been created is good. And the way they've got to that level is by doing. So if we're moving into a space where people no longer have to do, there are some interesting questions about what, uh, how we're going to get that next generation of people with those abilities. Let's talk about what you're doing. Animotion is a long-standing tech company. It's not one of these new babies on the block. It's been going in Teesside for a good number of years. Is it more 20 years or more? Uh, 17 or 18, yeah. Yeah, so certainly yeah. a significant amount of time. Now, at first it was all about virtual reality headsets and designing stuff that, that goes in them. But it's moved on beyond that. Tell us the latest iteration of your products. Okay, so we're still doing lots of work with industrial customers, but we're doing ever more in the education space. Um, some of that is taking the, the high-tech content and, and headsets into colleges and schools and developing content that can be used often in that interface between colleges and businesses and so our traditional customer base actually so creating content that helps to fill those skills gaps in the future um, and ever more and some of the really interesting stuff we're doing now is in immersive classrooms so uh, rather than putting on a headset, walking into a room which is essentially virtual reality, that where, where all of the walls and the floor are VR screens, um, and then developing software that enables teachers and educators to create content really quickly themselves for those for those spaces, um, so that we can. Uh, well, there's many benefits to, those, to, to that approach, but you can you can literally teleport people to other places in the world and give them different experiences uh, as a group collectively without that sort of barrier of putting a headset on. And show and tell is so much more effective in teaching mm -hmm. than long didactic uh, study of facts and figures, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. There are certain people that can take mathematical equations thrown at them, but when it comes to show and tell, it's, it's, a, it's a trainer's dream. Absolutely, and the possibility of interaction and collaboration in those spaces as well. Um, it's not an isolating experience, it's something where you know, people have experiences together. 
And are you still recruiting in Teesside? Is it because it's obviously very important to get the highest quality code as you can. Yeah. Um, is it some? Is, it, is yours a business you want to be first stop for those coders? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And we uh, we do recruit locally. We have a few people remotely as well. Um, and yeah, and we have a sort of a blended approach these days to that. Okay, Martin, we're going to wrap up with you. It's a big weekend, of course, the coronation weekend. Do you think the three bank holidays that we've got coming up is going to disrupt our economy, or are your members already? particularly in food and drink and hospitality, to take advantage of a willing public going out there and spending in joyous celebration? Well, it, uh, yeah, our members in hospitality are definitely enthusiastic about the uh, the extra bank holiday. But, you know, the, the other thing is, I mentioned the, the role of businesses in the rural communities about, you know, bonding and, and uh, gluing communities together. And, and that's got a really big hidden value. And I think this uh, bank holiday has got a big hidden value as well, building a sense of community spirit. And that will, that's bound to have a positive effect overall, I think, on the, uh, the economy. Well, Martin, Tim, Sam, thank you for joining us. Joining us again next week at the same time for another edition of Business Unmuted, the Northern Business Podcast.